the date of this recorded interview is Thursday, April 30th, 2020. And the first broadcast on KUCI is Tuesday, May 5th, 2020. Hello, everybody. This is UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. My guest today is UCI Medical Center Chief of Emergency General Surgery, Dr. Sebastian Schubel. He grew up on the East Coast and received his education from John Hopkins University and the University of Virginia and completed his residency of six years at New York Presbyterian Hospital from 2005 to 2011. Continued to serve as a surgeon and medical director at another New York City area hospital until 2016 when he came to UCI. In early April, with the New York City firestorm of COVID-19, he returned to New York Presbyterian Hospital to help out as a volunteer doctor. Welcome, Dr. Schubel. How are you today? I'm well. It's nice to be on. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome, sir. Here in the United States, we are now into this pandemic for just over six weeks, and it seems like at least six months. UCI classes are now online for who knows how long. Media coverage is overwhelming. The economy is shivering and shaking. We keep hearing about social distancing, washing your hands, masks, and self-isolation. I think it would be really useful just to hear your perspective on how this whole thing has rolled out. From literally when you became aware of COVID-19, then we can get into New York City. When did you first hear about COVID-19? Well, we were starting to hear early indications that there was a new coronavirus emerging in China. I think I remember hearing reports about it as early as January. It was difficult to assess at that time what the scope of this would be. We've certainly had two new additions to the coronavirus family that infect humans in the last decade with SARS-1 and MERS, which are both similar viruses. So we had dealt with less effective pandemics in the past, and then this seemed to be another one that's sort of brewing. And At first, it seemed like it was going to be isolated to China. And then obviously, everyone knows the history since then. It has spread dramatically. And nowhere has it hit worse than New York City. Right. When did you start getting scared? Is that in your nature? Did you feel like you were starting to lose a little sleep? Or like, wow, this is not going to just go away. Like, it seemed like we lucked out with Ebola and and some of the prior potential pandemics. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I was scared for myself. I think, as you said in your lead-in, it seems like social distancing and good hand hygiene and those sorts of things are pretty effective. Coronavirus is actually a fairly fragile family of viruses. And so you can protect yourself fairly effectively with low-cost solutions. But Mm -hmm. the idea of an epidemic is something that we all learn about in medical school. I think everyone has always been more focused on the idea of a, a really truly effective influenza virus emerging. The case everyone uses to compare it to would be the 1918 influenza epidemic that killed quite a large number of people. I think the expectation was something from that family would emerge. And it it seems to be on about every 100-year cycle that something like this does happen. Mm. Uh, And I guess this is it. This is it for our generation. And this is our version of this. And, And now we are understanding what a pandemic is on a personal level. We're seeing how a modern world is a perfect incubator for a virus to spread like this very effectively and very rapidly. And we're seeing how much our medical systems worldwide can really be tested and be responsive to an infection like this. And obviously, the lessons learned. (laughs) Right. Did you feel like as the chief of emergency surgery, okay, we're in good shape or was there a lot of uh, ramping up to get to where you wanted to be? I think when the 
the hospital decided to put itself on a real preparatory footing, which we've been on now for five or six weeks. Initially, when all that started, there was a lot of concern that we may see a very rapid surge here in Orange County or uh, certainly in L.A. and San Francisco, which would then obviously spread down south towards UC Irvine. And I do remember a lot of frantic meetings and a lot of work being done very quickly to try to figure out how can we prepare if what happens here mirrors what ended up happening in New York more closely. And I have to be honest, I was very impressed system-wide with the way people were reacting. We shut down our elective surgery very quickly. We stockpiled what we could, and it was difficult because the whole world was asking for the same pieces of equipment and the same mm-hmm. PPE. And we've been very lucky. Southern California, Orange County in particular, has not seen the same surge that has happened elsewhere in the world. I don't have a crystal ball, but I wouldn't be surprised if we probably shut down our county a couple of days before something like that might have ended up happening. We do have 3.3 million people in Orange County, and I think if we'd have gone on much longer without some of the shutdown maneuvers that we did end up employing, it could have been bad here, and luckily it was not. Mm. So I don't know if, again, fear is probably not really the the right way. I was very worried that we wouldn't have caught it in time, and it was great that we did. When did you start getting concerned about New York City? As you mentioned, I did my residency in New York at New York Presbyterian, the Cornell campus there. And obviously, as things were unfolding in New York, I was in communication with my mentor, Dr. Philip Berry, who was a really close friend and someone I very much look up to, a true master of critical care medicine and and, uh, emergency surgery. And he was in the thick of things. We were texting back and forth about the goings on in New York. And I was in, in communication with a few other faculty members at Cornell that I'm still in touch with. It seemed like they were holding their own, but it was a very different environment and it was a very different pandemic that they were handling versus what was going on here. And getting into early April, I felt like our hospital was fairly well prepared. I had a couple of weeks where I didn't have any clinical duties. So I asked my chair for permission, if he wouldn't mind if I went to New York. And when I reached out to Dr. Barry and asked them if they could use a hand, um, he said, yeah. So off I went. When did you make the decision to go and how soon did you go? It was actually pretty quick. I was texting with Dr. Barry. It was a Monday early in April. Mm-hmm. And I asked him if they needed any help. And I've said this in a couple interviews. He's not the kind of person that uh, really ever asked for help on any mm-hmm. level. And I was a little surprised when he immediately said, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I sent, there's a very brief application that New York Presbyterian put up on its website for physicians that might be willing. So I filled that out uh, that afternoon. I got permission from UCI, from Occupational Health, and my chair in the dean's office Tuesday morning, submitted my credentialing paperwork, and I was on a plane that Thursday. Wow. So you got there on Thursday, and then were you in the hospital on Friday? 7 a.m. Friday morning. Spent the first two days rounding with the team, shadowing Dr. Barry and getting a handle on the patients that they had in their surgical ICU, which is where I was stationed. They had 20 patients, all ICU-level patients. And after two days of getting the lay of the land, I covered four night shifts. So they were doing 12-hour on, 12-hour off shifts. And the surgical intensivists there at that time were covering three different ICUs. The surgical ICU, which was 20 beds, and then two 12-bed expanded ICUs. And since there's only six of them, three of them were working every day, three of them were working at night. They really were working really hard. So having someone come in and cover a few of those night shifts, you know, even if it's just for a few days, and, and certainly I wish it would have been longer, but even for those few days, it meant that they could go home to their families and get some rest. Gotcha. Did you know many of the healthcare professionals that you were working with? 
I did run into some familiar faces. I mean, some of the, as I mentioned, some of the faculty I'm still in touch with, and I knew them from when I was there. I finished my residency in 2011, so most of the ICU nurses had moved on, but there was four or five that were still there from my time, and that was nice to, to see them again and catch up. There was a few other folks I ran into throughout the hospital that, that were familiar to me as well. So it was a little bit of catching up with some old friends. But that wasn't really the purpose of being there. So uh, it was more about the work. Right. Where is the Cornell Hospital located? It's on the Upper East Side in Manhattan. It's 68th Street, New York Avenue is that main cross street. It's a pretty big campus. It stretches for several blocks in each direction. It's a pretty sizable medical center. And how about the patients that you were supporting? What was that like? Yeah, so I was in the surgical ICU as a 20-bed unit. The way Cornell managed its COVID response is they created a tier system for COVID patients. The sickest were the tier ones, and the surgical ICU I was in had all tier one patients. So I mean, we can get into the minutia of the critical care, but essentially they were all in the ventilator. They were all receiving pretty intensive care. And so the approach was that the traditional ICUs manage the very sickest, and if someone then gets better, it becomes a tier two or a tier three patient, they would be moved to some of the temporary ICU units, and then eventually, hopefully to a regular non-ICU unit and then be discharged. So we were constantly getting an influx of new tier one patients as we were moving patients that had gotten better out of that ICU. Have you had other stressful weeks like that in your career? I mean, there are some stressful weeks when you're a surgical resident, I won't lie, but this was definitely unique. It was a very different kind of experience. Even though I was familiar with the hospital, it had been a while since I worked there. And certainly, I'd never managed 20 COVID patients at the same time. So those first couple of days, really getting an understanding of how sick these people are and some of the maneuvers to try to make them better and keep them alive. There's a lot of learning going on, and I actually feel like I learned a lot in that week, but I don't think I've worked that hard in a week in a long, long time. How is the hospital doing now? They're doing pretty well. Just randomly, I happened to arrive the day their plateau patient volume started in New York City. Mm-hmm. So by the end of the week that I was there, there was already slowly a downtrend in the number of patients, I think, that were being admitted to the hospital. But obviously, patients start in the ED, and then you know they may not be that sick, and then eventually they filter up to the ICU as their disease progresses. So the ICU was still fairly overburdened, but I think the chats I've had with the folks that, that are back at Cornell, it, it sounds like the ICUs are starting to empty out, and they're starting to use less of these temporary and expanded ICU uh, locations and uh, trying to get back to being a hospital that treats things other than COVID because when I was there, that was really the entirety of the hospital had really been given over to COVID patients. Is there any possibility you might go back? I'd be willing, certainly. I know that a few of the other intensivists here have expressed an interest in going and have reached out through the same channels that I have. I think the word right now from, at least from Cornell, is that they're okay and that they don't necessarily need any other volunteers to come through right this minute. But, you know, this pandemic is still very much evolving and New York cannot stay on a lockdown forever. So we'll see how things go in the future. The situation maintains itself as it is where there's relatively little COVID burden here and there is a resurgence there. I certainly can't rule it out, but we may also see our own surge here in Orange County as, as things uh, open back up. So uh, we might be very busy here as well. When you look at the charts in the newspapers, Southern California looks very at risk, yet at the same time, it you know, at least from the communication from Sacramento is that we're very serious about this. We're still very much 
keeping social distancing, closing public parks, closing the beaches. From what I hear you saying is we're weathering pretty good, but that mystery, will it stay pretty good or, or not? That must be in the back of your mind. Yeah, there's, there's so many factors at play here. And I think the probably the overarching one is that we still don't really fully understand this disease. And we really don't yet really understand how much of our population has been exposed. And we won't understand that for weeks and months and possibly even years to come. There are lots of people who argue that there may be a seasonal component to this, as there is for the common cold, which four of the other coronaviruses cause about a third of the common colds that human beings get. And that definitely has a seasonal aspect to it. Everyone knows that there's a flu season and there's a non-flu season. And so it's another example of a virus that tends to have a cyclical nature to it. Um, There's also a very real possibility that a a sizable percentage of the population has already been exposed because the vast majority of people who do get infected have no symptoms. So early reports out of New York, especially in New York City, seem to indicate that as many as 20 or even more percent of the population has already been exposed, but we still don't really understand how much resistance to a secondary infection does that confer? Does it confer full immunity as it does, say, for example, with chickenpox, which is a virus that you really can only get once? Or is there an element of this where the virus uh, mutates and changes enough that a secondary infection is possible, but it's milder? Or these kinds of things are going to be really important to understand and study and figure out as we try to figure out how much risk is there for the population? And then how, how much do we need to keep our medical centers empty and prepared, which is, again, not something we can't do indefinitely. In terms of testing, it is so confusing to hear about the different types of tests and what we could have been more prepared for and, and what we need to do now. Can you shed any light on that? Yeah, testing can be very confusing because there are two big categories of tests. But then there are also multiple different platforms and companies and versions of each of those two big categories of tests. The primary test people are talking about when they're talking about testing is an RT-PCR test, which is usually a sample that's obtained from a nasopharyngeal swab where they stick a Q-tip in your nose. And what that test is looking for is the actual RNA that is this virus. So the swab picks up viral particles, it gets run through a machine, that tells you whether or not the RNA is present. Those tests are pretty good when the virus is present. Uh, However, you're only able to get a positive test on patients if they're elaborating virus, which means that someone who may be very, very early in their infection and they haven't really had a lot of viral production may test negative. And someone who is later in their infection and is still potentially even symptomatic may not have much virus production anymore and then would also be a false negative. But if you're in the typical phase of an infection, you know, early but not too early, I guess, those tests are pretty good, certainly over 90, 95% good for detecting whether or not you have coronavirus or SARS-CoV-2, as it's called, in your system. That's sort of one category of test, and, and we have not had enough of that testing. We have really only been able to test symptomatic people because of shortages in both the testing reagents as well as the swab that the tests need in order to run the test. And again, a very large percentage of people who get infected with SARS-CoV-2 do not have symptoms. And so you've had people who are totally asymptomatic but have the virus in their bodies are potentially, though it's not 100% clear, 
potentially able to spread the virus, maybe in a more limited form than a truly symptomatic patient is. And none of those people have been tested. And, and so what that means is that our understanding of what we call the denominator is very weak. We don't really know how many people in any given population really have actually had this infection. So what does that mean? When we don't have a solid denominator, we don't really understand the mortality of the virus because we, you know, we know how many people have died. That's really hard to hide. Mm-hmm. But if we have no idea how many people have been infected, was well, it 1%? Is it 3%? Is it 4%? Is, is it in this patient population? Maybe it's higher, maybe it's lower, or maybe it's 0.1% because 100 times more people have actually been infected with the virus than were ever tested. And of those people that were tested, only some percent actually were positive. So that's, that's, there's so many layers to that. And it, it's, it's something that epidemiologically is still being sort of understood. The other whole category of testing, which is something that's only coming online now, and it's potentially even more complicated to understand and talk about, is antibody testing. Antibody testing is not a swab test, it's a blood test. It can be run with a relatively small uh, 25 microliter sample of blood in some instances, depending on how the test is done, but certainly a, a vial of blood is more than adequate. That test would detect the presence of antibodies to SARS-CoV-2 in your system. But even this has elements to it. So there are hundreds of coronaviruses, and as I've said, seven of them are known to infect human beings. There's a lot of overlap in uh, the way these viruses are constructed. And so you may have an antibody to one of the other coronaviruses that just causes the common cold, that is really similar to an antibody that a test developed for SARS-CoV-2 detects, and therefore you may trip positive on a screen, and that may be then a false positive because what's really being detected is an antibody to something else, something very close, but something else. Mm. Conversely, you may not have yet developed antibodies because the antibodies take two, three weeks to really get made by your immune system, or the test itself, because I think there are at least 70 different antibody tests that are on the market, most of which are not validated at all. The test may not be that great at detecting antibody to begin with. Some of these tests uh, are called lateral flow tests, where they just put the drop of blood on a, something that looks a lot like a pregnancy test, and they just wait for a little band to appear. The test might be very weak. It, it might require a huge amount of antibody to even reveal a positive result, because it's not a particularly well-designed or well-constructed test. Mm-hmm. And so that would then create a lot of false negatives. So what we're really looking for, and I'm actually really proud of UC Irvine because we're leading this effort with an antibody test that looks like it's almost 100% accurate on either side, positive or negative. And there's a lab here on the main campus run by Dr. Felgner, Philip Felgner, that looks like it's an incredibly strong test in either one of these directions. And, and we're working really hard right now us here at the medical center and his lab to try to put that test into play so that we have a really ideal test to see whether or not people have been exposed. And if they have been exposed, do they have the antibodies that might be protecting them? I hope that sheds some light. That was a long answer. No, it actually, it was excellent. It's the first time it's been a lot more clear to me than whenever else it's been explained. So thank you for that. Excuse me for a few seconds, doctor. If you joined us late, you're listening to UCI Conversations I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my guest today is Dr. Sebastian Schubel, who is the UCI Medical Center Chief of Emergency General Surgery, and he is with us today, but is on call, so at any moment he might have to go into surgery, So, but we appreciate him being here now. Dr. 
Can you shed some light on it? Did you know Dr. Lorna Green back in New York? Uh, no, I, I did not. I did read that article, actually several at this point, about what happened to her, and it's just a devastating story. I know her dad was a doctor, and he wanted her portrayed as a hero, which I'm sure she is. As he said, she was killed by the disease and sadly took her own life. Can you share what the stresses are of what has happened to our healthcare providers under such extreme circumstances? Yeah. She worked, if I remember correctly, at the Allen Pavilion, which is yeah. under the umbrella of the Columbia campus of New York Presbyterian. I was at the Cornell campus, so a little bit physically removed. And that's why I don't think I ever met her in the course of my time in, in New York or when I was a resident. But from what it sounds like, the Allen Pavilion was hit extremely hard. It doesn't have quite the same resources that Maine Columbia University Hospital does, Milstein. And I think they were just seeing an awful lot of patients, and their ED was very busy. It seems that the outer boroughs, the Bronx, Queens, were hit a lot harder than Manhattan for, I'm not sure why. Mm-hmm. And so the hospitals in those communities were seeing a really rapid escalation of the pandemic and a lot of patients coming through their doors. And as an ED physician, she would have been on the front lines of that. I think her father is 100% right. She's a victim of this pandemic just like any other. (sighs) Yeah. Well, so it seems like in terms of for Southern California, so far so good, if you can put it in those terms, who knows what's really going to happen. Yeah, I mean, we do know some things, right? We know that our medical centers are now incredibly well prepared, though I think most of them do need to actually get back to the business of treating our friends, neighbors, and Californians. So we are going to have to start getting back to work a bit. We can't remain on a fully preparedness footing indefinitely. You know, our UCI is about half of our hospital beds are empty right now because we were waiting for this massive surge of COVID patients. And thank God it hasn't arrived. And so that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. But it also means that we have all of the equipment or all the things that we need stockpiled here so that we can continue that prepared footing so that if and when the surge does come, whether it's later this summer or in the fall or never, that we can manage it well. Every day, we're getting to understand more about the virus. We're understanding more about treatment options. We're understanding more about some of the things we talked about earlier, the immunology behind all of this, the antibody production in in people. So every day that we can continue to do that, it means that we're going to be more effective at managing people who end up getting sick. And I think that the major missing piece to really understanding the spread of the virus in the community has been access to high quality testing. And I know that there are countless numbers of people that are working on that. And every day that we get more of that work done means that if more people get sick in California, if we see a delayed surge or even a surge this summer, that we'll be able to track the exposures that positive people had, notify other people in the community, get them tested, and potentially keep this thing under better control than what New York experienced, which was really hit before they ever had a chance to prepare. So I think we're in much better shape now than we were five weeks ago, and I think we're in much better shape than we were yesterday. Wow, great to hear. Just back to the testing issue, you know, I've heard people talk about how we weren't prepared With the large number of variables, could we have been better prepared for testing? Or is this literally the first large-scale event we've had? So, boy, we've we've just had to learn so much as we went. Yes, we definitely could have been better prepared. And I don't think it's appropriate necessarily to get into the politics of all of this. But the way that this was handled 
was less than ideal. I think everyone can probably admit that. I think there were huge delays in the way that the United States as, as a nation, the federal government responded to this and prepared for this. There was just an error made at the CDC when their first version of the test was designed. They insisted on developing their own test and then distributing that test nationwide instead of letting different testing companies develop tests on their own. And unfortunately, the first test that the CDC developed and then disseminated was just a very ineffective test. There's a bunch of reasons why that happened that we don't need to get into. But having a solid centralized response and having a pandemic team that is closely aligned with the federal government that understands how to roll out that response and has practiced for it and has trained for it and learned about it and understood it, and then having some individuals in the federal government that are receptive to those people's ideas, I think that piece maybe was missing and there was a disconnect there. And I think several members of the administration have done an incredible job of trying to catch the country back up. And certainly we're in a better position today than we were in February or even in early March. But I think some of this, maybe much of this could have been avoided. We could have been better prepared and we could have responded better. But that's, that's the past and we need to focus on the present. We need to focus on the future and we need to figure out what can we do today to make sure that we are as prepared as possible tomorrow. Doctor, when did you decide to be an emergency surgeon? Was that something that you always wanted to do or did it just develop as you studied? How did you get into this? Yeah, I, uh, I always knew I wanted to be a surgeon and I don't really know where that came from. My mom likes to joke that when I was just a young young kid, I would always talk about wanting to be a surgeon someday, probably when I was far too young to really even understand what that is. <laughs> um, I don't have any healthcare people in my family, so I don't know where that came from. But I went to medical school intending to, go, to become a surgeon, and I was lucky enough to get into a surgical residency and, and then really happy to complete that training. I had a, a much harder time once I was in surgical training figuring out exactly what type of surgeon I wanted to be. Everything I did I loved it when I was doing it, whether it were pediatric surgery or cardiac surgery or thoracic or transplant, trauma, all the rest of it. I think in the end, trauma and emergency surgery is something I really enjoy in part because of that variety. I kind of love everything in trauma and emergency surgeons because of the nature of what we do. We really are not focused on one thing. We kind of do a lot of things. I took out a colon earlier today and I'll be taking out a gallbladder later and, and then I'll be on call and I'll, we'll see what comes, you know, whatever needs to be done. And so I think that may be why I was interested in that. I also really like the intensive care unit and trauma surgeons like myself, we spend a lot of time working in the surgical ICU and taking care of critically ill patients. So that kind of put it all together for me. And so that's why I pursued this particular profession. And you are on call. There's times when you have to. Yeah. I actually, uh, I just got a text message from my chief resident saying that they need me in the operating room. So I am unfortunately going to have to cut this short and head downstairs uh, and do that operation I was just talking about. Doctor, thank you so much for spending the time with us. We really appreciate it. Go do your awesome duty. Thank you so much. Yeah, you guys have a great day. And thanks again for having me on. And thoughts up. Thank you again to UCI Medical Center Chief Emergency Room Surgeon, Dr. Sebastian Schubel. Big kudos to Dr. Schubel for going back to New York City in early April to his former hospital, New York Presbyterian Cornell, on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, where at the height of this initial COVID-19 firestorm and ground zero for our national outbreak, a UCI anteater was doing his best to help as a volunteer doctor. 
The critical care unit he worked in was filled with extremely ill coronavirus patients on ventilators. It is not an understatement. It was life and death. Hats off to you, sir. During his interview, Dr. Schubel talked about Professor Philip Felgner's work on testing for the coronavirus. Coming up next, in just a moment, Professor Felgner will explain what that testing is and how it applies to our UCI Medical Center. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Stay tuned. Here we go with my interview of UCI Vaccine Center Professor Philip Felgner. Hello, everybody. This is UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. In my recent interview with UCI Medical Center Emergency Room Surgeon Dr. Sebastian Shabul, he talked about being very excited about the SARS-CoV-2 work of UCI Professor Philip Felgner. With his busy schedule and on short notice, Dr. Felgner has graciously made himself available to tell us all about the important work being done in his lab. Welcome, Dr. Felgner. How are you today? Oh, thank you for the invitation. I appreciate it very much to tell you about all of the activity that's going on at UCI now to help with the COVID outbreak. Fantastic. Professor, before we get into the details of what you're doing, could you give us a brief overview of all the testing that's being done? Because it's quite confusing for members of the general public. You know, there's the nasal test, there's a blood test, and people are saying we weren't ready. Other people say we were ready. Could you just give us an overview in layman's terms of what's out there? And then if you can drill down to what you're doing, that would be great. Well, I think all of the hoopla over the testing and the lack of tests that are available was about what is referred to as the molecular test. Mm. So that is a test that looks for the nucleic acid from the virus. That problem took a while to get resolved, but the industry stepped up, and now they're overcoming the shortage of those kinds of tests. Now, is that a a blood test or a nasal test? All of the testing for the nucleic acid right now is being done in a nasal swab. Okay. Because the virus doesn't seem to be present in the blood. It would be easier to take a blood sample and more reproducible to take a blood sample, but the virus doesn't appear to be present there. So they need to use a nasal swab. That's interesting. Is that common uh, in biology where a virus won't be detectable in the blood? Yeah, for respiratory infections where the virus infection is occurring in the lung, that's where you need to sample off and look for the virus. Mm. Just to the common person, you don't really think of that that separate, like the blood system and the respiratory system, but they are unique in, to themselves, I guess. Well, I think what was so uh, noticeable about the coronavirus is that the infection is taking place in the lung and the problems that people experience as a consequence of the infection are respiratory problems. You know, they're not so obvious that they're systemic. Although there have been some reports of GI consequences as well, that is uh, gastrointestinal problems. Gotcha. So there's Mm -hmm. the molecular nasal swab test. What is the blood test for testing for antibodies? 
Yeah, that's where our campus has a lot of strengths right now. And we're measuring the immune response that develops when a person gets infected with this virus. So we measure antibodies. And then people have a lot of questions. They'd like to know if uh, we can tell from the antibody response that they had if they were the flu symptoms that they experienced were actually uh, due to COVID-19. That's a, a very common question today that people have. It's amazing how when you talk to people and they swear, I had it in January, I had it in November. It's like I had the worst flu I've ever had in my life. They really think that they had COVID-19. Yeah, about that's this. right. Exactly. You, you hear this and you hear so much of this in the press right now. And then people, uh, it, it's flu season and there's as many flu cases happening as there are COVID cases in this country. Mm. So people are having, you know, serious flu cases and they are wondering if that was the COVID. Right. We're active in the lab to understand the antibody response to COVID so that we can predict for people whether they had a COVID infection instead of the usual flu. Gotcha. So is that what you guys are working on in your lab? Yeah, we have a special test. Instead of just measuring uh, antibody response to one single thing, which is what a lot of the developers that develop these serological tests to predict the in the COVID infection, we have 25 different antigens on this array that will help us to be more accurate about that prediction. Wow, great. When did you start working on this? Well, we have a lot of history in our lab of studying infectious agents. For about 20 years, we've been... uh, (laughs) studying a a method that allows us to have a very comprehensive look at the antibody response that people mount when they get lots of different kinds of infections. We've made 60,000 different proteins in our lab, and we can expose people's blood to those proteins and have a much better understanding of how their immune response is against infection. Mm, Wow. So are you just business as usual? You know, you've been working on this for 20 years, and so you just continue, or or was there a grant from the CDC or NIH, or or did you just feel like, oh, this is important work, we have to direct it towards SARS-CoV-2? We were actually poised to be responsive here because we got funding from DARPA a few years ago, and they were actually interested in contagiousness. And they helped us develop a protein microarray that has dozens of proteins, hundreds of proteins on it from different infectious viruses. So that allows us to take a blood sample from a person and put it on this uh, microarray And then we can tell what kinds of antibodies that person 
has that were the result of a previous exposure to the virus. So it's like a fingerprint that you get. It's different for every person, and it depends on their prior exposure. So are you ready to manufacture it? You know, where are you in the testing process to actually put this out to the general public? Well, the next thing we're going to do is we're going to take blood samples from a thousand employees and healthcare workers at the UCI Medical Center. Mm. In the UCI Medical Center, that's where people are at risk of exposure, you know, because Mm -hmm. they're treating sick patients that have the coronavirus infection. So that's a population that is very interested in knowing if they have antibodies against the coronavirus. Right. Because uh, if they do, then they feel that they might be better uh, prepared uh, when they get exposed to the virus from their work environment. When do you anticipate you're going to do that test on a thousand people? So I believe it's starting next week. We'll be collecting uh, what they call finger stick blood samples from the people. So it's easy to collect a few drops of blood from the people. So we should be able to collect all thousand specimens uh, pretty quickly. And then our approach for measuring the antibodies can be accomplished too at the rate of about a thousand specimens a week. So we should be able to get a good uh, sense of the antibody responses that are developing in a high-risk environment like the hospital. And is this just being done in your lab or is it in collaboration with other colleagues here at UCI or even outside of UCI? Oh, the hospital has been great. Their motivation to get these answers and to do this work has just been tremendous. Mm. And even to get all of the approvals and do everything properly It takes so much input from so many hospital personnel. Also, it has to be paid for. So somebody has to figure out how much it costs. And then the dean has to get uh, support for that. (laughs) You know, so there is just a very uh, concerted and synergistic effort throughout our whole system Mm. to do all of this properly. Mm. Because it can be done in a very slipshod way and then end up being misleading, you know, to our community and to the country and even to the world, mm-hmm. you know. So uh, the effort we're putting forward is to do this right mm-hmm. so that we end up providing good information about this whole topic. Gotcha. So initially you're going to work with the UCI Medical Center And then what will happen after that? You'll evaluate things and see how to move forward? Yeah. In our Orange County community, I get numerous emails every day from people in just uh, not within the university, but outside the university who are in this category of people like we were talking about earlier, who had a flu case and they wonder whether it was COVID-19. And they're so interested in that information. 
There, there's other examples. There was one email I got from a retired nurse. She's 65 years old. And during this outbreak, she wanted to go back to the hospital to help out because there's so much demand on the hospital right now. But she felt she had a severe case of flu symptoms and wondered if it was a COVID case. You know, if it was COVID and she had antibodies against COVID, she would have felt more comfortable to go back to the hospital and help out. Mm-hmm. But because she's in a high-risk group at age 65 already, she felt it wouldn't be wise for her to go back in that setting right now. So that's just an example. But people are so interested in this issue right now. They want to know if they're developing uh, an antibody response that could help them be protected from a future exposure. So this is going to go on for a long time. People are understanding more about what's called herd immunity, that gradually the people in our community and in the country will build up their immunity to this virus. And then eventually the consequences of an infection won't have such a large public health problem like we're experiencing now. But actually what we're learning, I think is It's happening, but it's happening slowly. So we're going to have to keep monitoring it and informing people about the pace of herd immunity because so far I would think that our advice is that we still need to protect against these infections. With social distancing, washing your hands thoroughly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's contradictory too, isn't it? Because to build up herd immunity, uh, you want to be exposed to the virus. You know, you want to get an exposure so that you can have an immune response so that the next time you get exposed, you'll be more prepared. We're doing all the social distancing. So actually we're slowing down herd immunity because of that. You know, so it's very complicated. And so it's, it's, it, all of this means it's going to be important for us to monitor on a sort of a population scale the antibody response in, in the population so that we can gradually begin to feel, feel more and more comfortable that the population as a whole is more resistant to the most severe consequences of this virus. The other place where the antibody measurements that we're making are very helpful is in the the qualification of plasma that's taken from convalescent patients. Uh, You've probably heard about this, that, you know, people who have recovered from a uh, infection develop antibodies to the infection. And those antibodies can be obtained from plasma from the patients. Mm -hmm. And then that plasma can be administered to people who are experiencing an acute infection to help them recover. That whole matter of obtaining plasma, I think the scale people don't really usually appreciate what the the scale of this uh, plasma isolation will be for coronavirus. There'll be hundreds of thousands of plasma units obtained 
in order to treat patients in the future. But one of the things we don't know is how much antibody is present in each donor. What we've learned is that there's a tremendous variation in the amount of antibodies against coronavirus in different donors. Mm. So what we need is a screening tool to weed out the plasma that aren't effective and concentrate on the ones that are. We think that that's going to be very helpful in the future because therapeutics with plasma have been disappointing in the past. Mm. Uh, and Because sometimes, you know, one donor will be really good and uh, producing a lot of great antibodies that helps the acutely ill patients. And then another donor, it doesn't work. So they think that the the approach is flawed. Mm -hmm. But it could just be the plasma needs to be QC'd before it's used, you know. Mm-hmm. And that that's a gap in our knowledge that the uh, the work that we're doing, uh, we hope, will fill that uh, knowledge gap. Excellent. Dr. Professor Felgner, thank you so much for stepping in on such short notice to shed some light on another part of the COVID-19 disease. And we really appreciate it. Keep up the great work. We're honored to hear about it. Thank you. Oh, great. Thank you very much. Thank you again to UCI Vaccine Center Professor Philip Felgner and UCI Medical Center Chief Emergency Room Surgeon Dr. Sebastian Schubel. Thanks to both of them for taking the time out of their busy schedules to give us more hope in these uncertain times. Zot, zot, zot. I never knew Zot could sound so good. Now turning the page, my guest next week will be extraordinary Professor Ilham Masoudi discussing her passionate love of immunology and new things that are being discovered as UCI works to defeat SARS-CoV-2. Thank you again to piano man extraordinaire Fred Kaplan for his wonderful show theme and closeout music, all of which are off his terrific signifying CD. Check it out. If you'd like to hear an encore of this episode of UCI Conversations or any episode this academic year, simply go to my podcast website at www.bostonmeyer.com. That's Bostonmeyer. It's phonetic. B is in Bravo. O S S is in Sierra. E N is in November. M is in Mike. E Y is in Yankee. E R. www.bostonmeyer.com. I can always be reached at my station email at kboss at kuci.org. I make it a point to answer all inquiries. You've been listening to UCI Conversations, where every week we explore another corner of the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and zot, 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 everyday anteaters. At this time, UCI Conversations is dedicated to bringing you weekly reports of how UCI is making a difference in the fight against SARS-CoV-2. Go Anteaters! And coming up next is Entrepreneur Nation with Ash Kumra. He'll be sharing important topics, both personal and professional, on how to succeed in business. Stay tuned. You're listening to UCI Conversations on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Don't forget, don't let your guard down against the coronavirus. 
We are only in round one of a 15-round mega battle. Keep your social distance. Wash your hands a full 20 seconds. Refrain from touching your face and help out when you can. We will get through this. I've been your host, Kevin Bossemeyer, and it's been a blast. Hang in there. I wish you a super good evening. Zot, zot, zot.